Good afternoon, everyone. In previous sermons, we've discussed the meaning of the term born again from the standpoint of Scripture. We first discussed metaphors or figurative expressions where one thing is likened to another. And as was explained, there are many metaphors used in the Bible, and the idea of born again is one of them. We discussed how one of the ways in which the term born again or ideas related to that concept has to do with the change that occurs when one is converted. Some have had the idea that being converted is likened in the Bible to biological conception, but not to being born again, as one might say. In fact, both metaphors are found in the Bible in connection with conversion, both the idea of being conceived and also the idea of being born in connection with conversion. Some key scriptures to keep in mind regarding the concept of born again as a metaphor of conversion include the following. And as I've said previously, I'll try to put this all, make this available in writing so you can study it in more detail for yourself. But these are some good scriptures to keep in mind regarding this question. The first one is Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, where it says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Another one is Galatians 4, beginning with verse 28. Galatians 4 and verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to this flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. And the Greek word translated children in verse 28 is technon, which means a child, that which is brought forth or born, derived from the Greek word tikto, which means to produce, to be born, to bear, or bring forth. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, Now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. The Greek word for children in this verse is also technon, which again refers to one who has been born. And in Matthew 18 and verse beginning verse 2 or in verse 2, it says, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. The Greek word here for children is pideon, which means a little child, commonly an infant, although it can refer to young children who are several years of age. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Three, Peter refers to Christians as having been born again 
And then in chapter 2 and verse 2, going on with his, uh, his instructions in the next chapter, he says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. The word translated newborn is from the compound Greek word artigenetos, which is commonly understood means newborn or just born, just as it's translated. The word translated babes as in newborn babes in this verse, chapter 2 and verse 2 of 1 Peter is brephos, which can refer to an as yet unborn fetus or an infant child. And here the word would be understood as referring to an infant child since an unborn fetus cannot drink milk and also an unborn child would not be referred to as a newborn as it is in this case. Many Christians, especially those identified as evangelical Christians, profess to having been born again and connect being born again with being converted in some sense to faith in Christ. Very few indeed, however, among those who profess to be Christians understand how being born again relates to the resurrection. And it's this dimension of the concept of born again that I don't want to discuss in today's sermon. How the term born again relates to the resurrection. We've discussed earlier how baptism is symbolic of not only the newness of life in which the converted are to walk, but of the resurrection to eternal life itself. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, Matthew 19 verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, I say to you, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on his throne. And the Greek word for regeneration here is palingonasia, which literally means new birth, as we discussed previously in connection with another scripture. This time, spoken of in Matthew 19, verse 28, is clearly the day in the future when Christ and his disciples will be together in the resurrection. Paul wrote to the church in Colossians 3 and verse 4, Colossians 3 and verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the time of the resurrection, and Christ said, when he appears, then the saints would appear with him in glory. And in speaking of those who, will, to, who are to be resurrected from the dead at the time of the 
kingdom of God being established on the earth under Christ's rule, Jesus said, quote, this is in Luke 20 and verse 36, Luke 20 and verse 36, he said, these to be resurrected are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So it is clearly through the resurrection that we attain fully our destiny and inheritance as sons of God. The words sons of the resurrection imply an event analogous to birth, only far more dramatic and powerful in its implications than a merely fleshly birth. Now let's back up a moment or step back a moment and consider uh, another way in which an analogy is used in the Bible of the converted. One place in Scripture where the converted are likened to the unborn awaiting birth is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, beginning with verse 18, it says, Romans 8, verse 18, the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And it goes on to say, actually that's in verse 19, I believe. Uh, it goes on to say, beginning with verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now the Greek word translated adoption here is huiothesia, which literally means placing as sons. Placing as sons, that's the literal meaning of the word huiothesia or thesia. Uh, and uh, in this case, it's speaking of not adoption, but the resurrection. The analogy here of the converted as children awaiting birth through the resurrection is very clear. It is translated adoption here in the New King James, but it really means placing of sons and is speaking of the resurrection, not not an adoption as we normally understand the concept of adoption. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, Colossians 1 and verse 18, it is said of Jesus Christ, quote, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. Notice it says of Jesus Christ that he is the firstborn from the dead, likening the resurrection to being born, because that's what it's talking about. How was he born from the dead, so to speak? It was through the resurrection. And it goes on to say that in all things he may have the preeminence. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, 
Revelation 1 and verse 5, Jesus is referred to again as, quote, firstborn from the dead, end quote. Now, some have claimed that this term firstborn from the dead is only a title denoting preeminence. But does it only denote preeminence or does it also imply that Jesus Christ is the first in time order to be born from the dead as a metaphor for the resurrection with others to follow? Now, this is a very important question. Does the, term, does the title firstborn from the dead applying to Jesus Christ imply that others will be born from the dead, so to speak, as he was? The Greek word translated firstborn in these verses is prototakos, and it is a compound word derived from protos, which means first, and tikto, which means to bring forth, or to bear, or to produce. This word is used several places in the New Testament, including the account of Christ's birth by the Virgin Mary, where it says she brought forth her firstborn son, prototakos. In commenting on the use of the word prototakos, or firstborn, in Luke 2 and verse 7, the Greek grammarian A.T. Robertson wrote, quote, this is from uh, Word Pictures in the New Testament, a, a, a commentary by A.T. Robertson. And uh, he said, quote, the expression, and he's speaking of this expression that's translated firstborn, in Luke 2 and verse 7, the expression naturally means that she afterwards had other children, and we read of brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, you might understand that some, and most especially the Catholic Church, have contended that Jesus did not have any physical brothers or sisters, but the, the New Testament clearly shows that he did and this term firstborn implies that he did have brothers and sisters now the equivalent Hebrew word in the Old Testament is bekor and it along with cognate words of similar or related meaning occurs extensively in the New Testament speaking of firstborn sometimes of animals humans or whatever there are a few instances in the Old Testament where the term firstborn is used in a purely figurative sense of that which is supreme or preeminent over its kind, but in the vast majority of cases it is used of that which is literally first in time order to be born of a parent, especially the firstborn child of a father, for the firstborn son of a father, in most cases. And Scripture reveals that God from the beginning had a particular regard for that which was the first to be born or produced. And he claimed the firstborn as his own in a special way. In Ezekiel 13, verse 2, for example, 
Ezekiel thir or Exodus 13 verse 2, excuse me. Exodus 13 verse 2, God said, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. So he claimed the firstborn as his in a special way. You might remember in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel brought each one an offering to God. And Abel's offering was pleasing and acceptable to God in part because it included the firstborn of his flock. Cain's offering did not include anything that is designated as firstborn. And we read in Genesis 4, beginning with verse 3, Genesis 4 and verse 3, it says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. It says nothing about this being the firstborn or even the first fruits, but it says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. He respected Abel and his offering. The implication is that he rejected the offering of Cain as something that was not acceptable. Under the culture and legal system of the Old Testament, firstborn sons were accorded certain rights, privileges, and responsibilities solely by virtue of having been born first. Among them was a double portion of the inheritance divided among the father's sons, as you can see from Deuteronomy 21, verse 17, for example, which we won't read, but you can look it up later if you wish, Deuteronomy 21, verse 17. An example of how the firstborn was given a double portion is in Genesis 14 of uh, Genesis 48, beginning with verse 21. It says, Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. So Joseph, who was actually not the firstborn of Israel, but he had been uh, given that position, as we will see in a moment in more detail, he, he was regarded as the firstborn and as a consequence he was given a double portion of, of the inheritance. Among the patriarchs, the birthright of the firstborn included chieftainship or rule over the brothers and the entire family as well as, as being uh, the, the right of the firstborn in, including a double, included a double portion. It also included you might say, uh, preeminence in the family over the other siblings. In giving the blessing of the firstborn to Jacob, Isaac said to him, quote, and this is Genesis 27 and verse 29, 
Genesis 27, verse 29, Isaac said to Jacob as he blessed him, he said, be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. End quote. Firstborn sonship in the patriarchal line encompassed title to the blessing of promise, which included physical inheritance for their descendants of the choice parts of the earth and the spiritual blessing of fellowship with God in a covenant relationship. Jacob, who was not the firstborn of Isaac, had garnered title to the blessing of the firstborn when Esau, the firstborn son, had sold Jacob his birthright. Esau despised his birthright, we're told elsewhere, and he sold it to Jacob for a bowl of, of uh, lentils, I believe it was. And so Jacob became heir to the birthright and the claims of the firstborn son. In blessing Jacob, Isaac said in Genesis 28, beginning with verse 3, Genesis 28 and verse 3, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to Abraham. End quote. Now we find a commentary on this in Psalm 105, beginning in verse 8. Psalm 105, verse 8, it says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word which He commanded for a thousand generations. Now this is speaking of the covenant that began with Abraham and was passed on to others. Says he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So this was passed on, beginning with Abraham, to each of the firstborn, not necessarily the ones who started out as the firstborn, but the ones who inherited the rights of the firstborn. It goes on in verse 42 of Psalm 105 and says, For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness, he gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. So the descendants of Jacob or Israel inherited the blessings of the covenant, which was passed down through those who had the right of the firstborn. During the period of the kings in Israel, and Judah, it was customary for the firstborn son of the king to succeed his father as king, although the custom was not always honored. Sometimes it was someone other 
than the firstborn. But we read of Jehoshaphat as he was dividing his inheritance to his offspring. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 3, Second Chronicles 21 verse 3, their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things with fortified cities in Judah, but he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. So Jehoram succeeded Jehoshaphat as king by virtue of the fact that he was the firstborn among the siblings. Now, under the law, the right of the firstborn was to belong to him who was literally born first. Yet it is clear from scriptural example that that right could be transferred to someone else for cause. We've already dis discussed how Esau sold his birthright and therefore gave up his right to the privileges of the firstborn. Reuben was the firstborn son of Jacob or Israel. But he forfeited his birthright as firstborn by committing adultery with Jacob's concubine. We read in Genesis 49 and verse 1, Genesis 49 verse 1, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency and dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And more, more details about that incident are found in Genesis 35, verse 22. In 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 1, <clears throat> 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. So what this is telling us is that because of Reuben's sin, he lost title to the birthright and it was the the uh, privileges of the firstborn were given to others a part of it was given to joseph and his descendants and then in verse 2 it says yet judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came a ruler although the birthright was joseph's so Joseph inherited the birthright in most respects, but in respect to preeminence, that is kingship, among the descendants of Israel, that went to the children of Judah. And so eventually, David, who was a descendant of Judah, became king of Israel, and his throne was established forever, and 
it was to be um, occupied by his descendants. And eventually from Judah sprang Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Joseph was the only son of Rachel who was one of Jacob's wives. Now, <clears throat> all the descendants of Israel's sons were to share in the inheritance and then in the blessings that were given to Abraham through the covenant passed on to his descendants. But the greater part of the physical inheritance went to Joseph and to his sons. And we read in Genesis 48, beginning with verse 15, where Jacob was blessing the two sons of uh, Joseph. And it says, He, Jacob, or Israel, blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, blessed the lads. And he's referring here to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He said, bless the lads, let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. End quote. In foretelling the future of the descendants of his sons, Israel said of Joseph in verse 26, in verse 26 of Genesis 49, he said, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors, or as it reads in another translation, Green's literal translation, are above the blessings of my offspring, indicating that Joseph's blessings exceeded the blessings of the other brothers and their descendants. He said, the, the blessings of your father are above the blessings of my offspring up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. But as we read, the scepter was given to Judah. And as it says in verse 10 of Genesis 49, Genesis 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And this is a reference to the Messiah springing from King David, who was of the tribe of Judah. It's clear that the primary meaning of firstborn in the Old Testament usage had both to do with preeminence and rank, authority or position, as well as, in most cases, first in time order. And so it's with this background that the term is used in the New Testament. Now, as mentioned earlier, some deny that firstborn from the dead, as used of Jesus Christ, implies anything but a position of preeminence. Others take a more sensible view supported by Scripture that the term implies more than that. In commenting on Revelation 1 and verse 5, where... We, where the expression concerning Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, occurs. A.T. Robertson writes this comment of that title, firstborn of the dead. He writes, quote, a Jewish messianic title 
And as in Colossians 1.18 refers to priority in the resurrection to be followed by others. Priority in the resurrection to be followed by others, end quote. Commenting on the same expression, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says, quote, The Father has raised Christ from the dead, pledging Him as the first of a great company who will follow. So Christ is the firstborn from the dead, but He is not the only one who is to be born from the dead, so to speak. The scriptures teach that the faithful will be resurrected in the same manner as Jesus Christ. In Romans 6 and verse 5, Romans 6 and verse 5, it says, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that clearly implies that we will be resurrected the very same way that Jesus Christ was. In Romans 8, verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, <clears throat> He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit which dwells in you. And... In Romans 8, beginning with verse 16, it says, Romans 8, verse 16, the Spirit Himself, or itself as it should be translated, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, and if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. End quote. So with those scriptures in mind, the term firstborn from the dead clearly is a figure of speech denoting Jesus Christ as the first among many who will be resurrected in the same manner as he. We read in Romans 8 and verse 29, Romans 8 and verse 29, that those called and chosen are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among many brethren. So you can't get much plainer than this. Jesus Christ is to be the firstborn among many brethren. And this tells us what God has planned for those who respond to His calling. It's not as we've explained in other scriptures, predestined doesn't mean God's picked out certain people <clears throat> in advance to be saved and others are condemned. That's not what it means at all. It simply refers to the purpose and plan that God has for human beings and the reason that He calls human beings and he will eventually call everyone and everyone will have that opportunity to be conformed to the image of His Son to be among the 
the children of God through the resurrection. And these scriptures reveal that the resurrected saints will be like Christ. They will be children of God, sons of God as Jesus Christ is. Although they will, of course, be subordinate to Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But he is firstborn from the dead through the resurrection, and hence others too will be born from the dead through the resurrection into the very image and likeness of the glorified Christ. Now, in the Hebrew language, the same word is used for firstborn or first fruits. It could mean either one depending on the context. And both of these are used as metaphors or symbolic types in the New Testament pointing to the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, it says, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. End quote. First fruits clearly implies that there are more fruits to follow. Hence, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, Christ is referred to as the first fruits, but those who follow are also referred to as first fruits elsewhere. Christ being the first of the first fruits. Christ is among the first fruits, but others in the first resurrection will also be first fruits. As we read in James chapter 1 and verse 18, James 1 and verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And there are other scriptures that speak of the first fruits among Christians as well. So in these scriptures, we see clear evidence that Christ is the first of many to follow in the resurrection. The word first fruits being used in place of firstborn in the uh, scriptures we, we quoted last. But whether it's the term first fruits or firstborn, the implications are the same. Now, the resurrection of the saints to occur at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ is referred to as the first resurrection. In Revelation 20 and verse 6, Revelation 20 and verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Meaning that they will be resurrected, those resurrected in the first resurrection, the one that will occur at the same time that Jesus Christ comes back to the earth in power and glory, is a resurrection to eternal life. 
Now, after the millennial age, after the thousand-year period during which Christ will rule over his kingdom on the earth, there will be a general resurrection of many other people, vast numbers of people, most of those who were not resurrected in the first resurrection, who had lived and died, will be resurrected at that time. But that resurrection will not be a initially a resurrection to eternal life. It will be a resurrection to mortal life. But they will have an opportunity to, through repentance, be granted the gift of eternal life, but they will be resurrected initially to mortal life. And as we read in <clears throat> Revelation 20 and verse 5, it says, The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Then in verse 12, of Revelation 20, verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, meaning that they will have an opportunity to have their names written in that book of life. That is the book that signifies that they are destined for eternal life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books, meaning they will have a period to live another life and be judged. And it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, or the grave, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, or the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. After that period of judgment, anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast into that lake of fire and burned up forever. But the book of life will be opened at that time and those resurrected will have an opportunity to have their names written in it and be granted eternal salvation. Now, you might think about what is implied in the concept of being born, so to speak, into the family of God at the resurrection. It is awesome in its implications. The words firstborn and firstfruits used of Jesus Christ imply that those who follow will be of the same nature as God. They will share the nature of God. Now, individual grains of barley, for example, while varying slightly from one another, share the same nature. They're all grains of barley. They have certain specific characteristics, a particular nature. Sons born to the same parents are different from one another in personality and in other relatively minor ways, but they share the same nature. They share human nature, the nature of their parents. 
And so, according to Scripture, those raised from the dead after the likeness of Christ, they will be of the same nature as Jesus Christ in His glory. <clears throat> as we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. As we have borne the image of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus Christ. Or as he's referred to in verse 47, the Lord from heaven. We will bear the image of the Lord from heaven. Now, we are like Adam in general appearance and, in, and nature, and in the very same way in the resurrection we shall bear the image of Christ the Lord, the Son of God, and we will be like Him in general appearance and nature. As we read in 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, it is promised that we may, we have certain promises that we may be partakers of the divine nature, that we may be partakers of the divine nature. In 1 John 3 and verse 2, 1 John 3 and verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God. We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. When he is revealed, we shall be like him. We read in Philippians 3 and verse 21, Philippians 3 and verse 21, that Christ will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Our bodies will be transformed that may, they may be conformed to his glorious body. The promise of eternal life that is God life is mentioned in numerous scriptures. We read in John 3 and verse 14. John 3 and verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we've already seen in Colossians 3 and verse 4 that we shall share Christ's glory. The resurrected saints will also share His throne or His rulership under His authority, helping to bring godly, righteous, and benevolent rule to all the earth. In Revelation 20 and verse 6, Revelation 20 and verse 6, speaking of those in the first resurrection, it says, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. In other words, the resurrected saints will be junior members of the divine family, the God family. They will be subordinate to God the Father and subordinate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, they will have the nature of God. Just as children are subject to their parents, although they have the same nature. In Revelation 21, verse 7, Revelation 21, verse 7, it says, He who overcomes 
shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now we might ask, why do many who claim to be Christian want to ignore such clear statements of Scripture and deny that God has such a glorious destiny in store for mankind? There are very few people who, who actually believe, even though they may call themselves Christians, who actually believe what these scriptures that we've read clearly imply. In fact, those proclaiming this message have been called blasphemers for teaching these very truths just as Jesus Christ was accused of blasphemy for saying that he was the Son of God, as you read in Matthew 26, beginning with verse 63. Jesus was accused of blasphemy for saying that he was the Son of God. And at times, those who have said that human beings are destined to become sons of God in the same way that Jesus Christ is the Son of God through the resurrection have been accused of blasphemy. However, there are a few theologians of the popular churches of Christianity which have understood the truths that we proclaim in this matter, at least partially understood it, if not entirely. William Barclay, for example, wrote a book called New Testament Words. And in the chapter of the book where he discusses the meaning of the Greek word ionios, which is usually translated eternal, and he discusses this word Ionios in connection with eternal life. And he says, quote, eternal life is nothing less than the life of God himself. Eternal life is nothing less than the life of God himself. Now, when you read the term where it says that, that God intends to give eternal life to certain people, it's talking about he's giving them his life, the very life that he has, which is eternal life, which has no beginning and no end. Now, you might say, well, our lives have a beginning. Yes, our lives do have a beginning, but eternal life has no beginning and no end. And that's what God will give to us. Now there will be a, a point at which we will have access to that life, which we will be given that life, but it is the life of God. It is, it is a life that is without limit. Barclay goes on to say in the same chapter, Quote, life is of value when it is nothing less than the life of God. And that is the meaning of eternal life. 
nothing less than the life of God, and that is the meaning of eternal life. He went on to say in the same chapter, quote, the ultimate destiny of the Christian is a life which is none other than the life of God himself. So you might contemplate what that means. The destiny of a Christian is to be given the life of God. God's nature. God's life just as apparent through the process of reproduction gives life to his or her offspring. So God is holding out to us the opportunity to be granted his life. Now, the second century cleric and theologian Irenaeus, who died about 200 A.D., Irenaeus was affected by the corruption of truth that characterized the professing Christian churches in the second century and later. But in some areas of doctrine, his understanding was quite sound. He had been trained by Polycarp, who in turn had been trained by John and who had had contact with other of the original 12 apostles. And uh, so uh, Irenaeus had learned a lot of true doctrine from Polycarp, doctrine which Polycarp had received directly from the apostles. And Irenaeus wandered from some of those teachings, wandered a great deal, in fact, in certain respects from them. But among the things that Irenaeus taught is that the divine plan was for man to become like God. In answer to the question, why did God become human? Irenaeus answered, in order that we might become gods, that is, God-like. Our destiny is to become like God. That is our purpose. That's the, that is the destiny that God has laid out for human beings. And every human being will have the opportunity to fulfill that destiny. However, too many of the purveyors of popular Christianity have taught vaguely about an immortal soul going to heaven with nothing particular to do except to strum on a harp or stare endlessly into the face of God. They have conceived God as a trinity, which no one really understands because it's unintelligible by their own admission. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's contradictory. And it also is a closed Godhead where no one could actually be on the same plane as God in terms of sharing his nature. Not, not that we're going to be equal with God in terms of authority 
we will, as I've mentioned several times, be subordinate always to God. Anyone in his family will be. But nevertheless, they will share his nature. The real purpose of every human being's existence is to literally become a member of the divine family. Like God, sharing fully in his nature, having power and glory similar to that of God, only subordinate to him, and inheriting with God all things. And that purpose is, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in a book that he uh, titled, Why Were You Born? Actually, there were several editions of that book published. But this is a quote from the 1972 edition where Mr. Armstrong said, wrote of this concept, this purpose of God. He wrote that it is stupendous beyond the capacity perhaps for many to grasp. Stupendous beyond the capacity perhaps for many to grasp. He went on to say it is too utterly fantastic for even theologians to believe. End of quote. It may be too fantastic for many theologians or others to believe, and yet it's exactly what the Bible teaches. And these scriptures that I've read here today make it ought to make it crystal clear. Those willing to lay aside preconceived notions and approach God's word humbly can, with God's help, grasp and believe the astounding truth about human destiny. Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 25, or maybe verse 27. I have these verses mixed up, but he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Verse 